0: Well, if um, you bet that I was gonna go on vacation and stay on vacation, you lost. (laughs) Came back, um, so pay up. Um, People have asked, was your vacation restful? Well, outside of uh, Denton, which is outside of Dallas in North Texas, our uh, transmission grenaded in our van, like spewing parts and oil all into the engine compartment, and we kissed her goodbye. We donated her to the Texas Veterans Association. Um, so that they can deal with her. So um, now we've got to, like, find another van. But it's, it's really weird. It's like a first-world problem. Like, do we get to the stove and go? Do we not? And there are war-torn countries, and there are countries in this world where people cannot get water. It just feels weird that we're, like, actually having to figure this stuff out. Um, but maybe I could buy a horse. Anybody know where I can buy a horse? I could go and meet you guys on a horse. It's probably still a first-world problem. Like, is that a nice horse or not? But... Anyway, I digress. Let's talk about something that matters. Let's talk about Jesus um, the way Travis was talking about it. Let's get caught up in his presence and move toward him. And um, yeah, let's pray. Oh, by the way, if we haven't met, I'm Glenn. It only gets better from here. So, <laughs> Father, thank you for Jesus. And thank you for him sending his spirit onto us, onto Redeemer Church. Lord, I pray that this morning that you would move in this room, Lord. Make these words that you have perfected our conscience, make them real to us. Make our consciences line up with that. I ask God that you would move so that we might walk out of here worshiping you more, bringing glory to you more, having our lives changed by you and your power even more. And I ask this, Lord, by your decree, by your will, by your desire, in the name of Jesus, amen. So today we are gonna head into the tabernacle. That's the tent that the author of Hebrews was talking about. And so for us who are here, we may have heard about the tent or the tabernacle. It's this old covenant, Old Testament uh, system. And I think it's actually really difficult for us to understand the Old Testament tabernacle. And the reason is, is because you and I, when we come to know Jesus, there's something fundamental that happens, that we are indwelled with the, the Spirit of God at the moment when we come to know Jesus. We're, we're indwelt with God's presence when we come to know Jesus. And so when we're looking at the Old Testament tabernacle, we're looking at something that's not indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The, the presence of God is contained in this tent. It's not in us. So it can actually be like really... Geographically, physically hard to understand the Old Testament covenant and the and the tabernacle, but spiritually impossible almost for us to understand what it would be like to worship God, but not having the Spirit be inside of us. See, there all their rituals, all the sacrifices took care of things outwardly, but not inwardly. So put yourself in the place of an Israelite in the wilderness in the book of Of Numbers or Exodus. And just so you know, um, a lot of the stuff that I got today was from Mike Winger. Someone had posted uh, a video of him. He goes through, talks about the tabernacle in uh, Redeemer Reader's uh, Facebook page for 2022. And um, it goes into great detail. I worshiped God a lot when I was reading through or watching through that because he talks about how everything points to Jesus. But there is so much information about the Old Testament tabernacle. Mike Winger, who I mentioned, uh, Charles Spurgeon, Arthur Pink, various commentaries, Bible knowledge commentary, info from Hebrew scholars and intertestamental writings, and all of this, you can really geek out on this. Like, not just a book, but volumes of books talking about the tabernacle. But all of these things, they all say the same thing. All of these people who are studying the tabernacle, they say, It points to Jesus, that Jesus is better than the tabernacle, but God uses this illustration in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, for us to understand how it's devoid of something. As you're walking through this, I'm hoping that you find yourself saying, there's something missing from this picture. There's something that's not here that needs to be. So let's take a look at this. Um, I brought slides today, if we could bring the first slide up. There we go aerial view of, this is actual aerial footage. This is of the nation of Israel during the time of the tabernacle. You have this, all of this set up by God. He's the one who orchestrated this. He thought through this. He's like, this is what I want you to do. He gave Moses instructions, very careful instructions on how to set up the tabernacle as well as the whole nation of Israel that are out here what you're looking at here is a nation. It's a nation that wanders around a wilderness. Now there are basically three things that make up a nation. You need to have people, right? That is kind of like the the lowest common denominator. You also need to have law, but then you also need to have land. So God promised them land, he hasn't given given it to them yet, so they're out wandering around, but he's given them people, he called them to be his people, and he's given them law. And what he did was he set this up, we're talking 480 to 500 years, that this is the way the nation of Israel worshipped God. They would move from one place to another, following the pillar that rested above this tabernacle, and they would go and they would worship God for basically twice the the lifetime of the United States, that this is how they worshipped. And all feasts happened in the middle, in this tabernacle, which is in the very middle of this map. And all festivals and all celebrations happened right here. When Israel went outside of sacrificing right here and having festivals right here in those high places, in those mountains that you see surrounding, they got rebuked. Those are pagan places. God said, I want to have Uh, The tabernacle be the center of sacrifice, the center of worship. And any worship happening outside of this don't do it. all of these tents that are surrounding this area is the nation of Israel. Notice how they're all oriented toward this tabernacle. They're all facing the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the center of this nation. All of those tents that you see are a nation that are being formed and, and um, worshiping and centered on this tabernacle that is right in the middle of all of those tents. And what's in this tabernacle that they're all facing? The very presence of God. Um, the Bible talks about that God came in the form of a pillar of cloud by day, basically a, a tornado by day, and then a a pillar of fire by night, a flaming tornado by night. And this was signifying the very presence of God and the very power of God, and it rested right over this small space called the tabernacle. Now, sometimes this would move, and the nation would follow this pillar. They would wake up in the morning, and they're like, oh, the pillar was right over the center of the tabernacle. Now it's 10 miles down that valley. We need to go and pack everything up. So this was mobile, The tabernacle was mobile. It was to be torn down and carried and brought to the next place wherever the cloud stopped. They would then set up the tabernacle in that place where the cloud stopped. The the, the point is this, that everything happened within the tabernacle. It was the center of their entire being as a nation. And Hebrews 9.1 says, The first covenant had regulations now for worship, and an earthly place of holiness. So not only is it the center of their being, but it had a purpose, and that was for regulations for worship. But again, as we zoom in on this, I want you to understand that there's something fundamental that's missing from this. Can you hit the next slide, please? This is kind of like a real shot. Uh, This would have been like if you were raising your family in one of those tents, this is what you would have seen. It's about 150 feet long, about 75 feet wide. It's, it has this wall that no one, you and I, if we were there, would not have been able to go into. We would have only been able to see over the top if we were standing from afar. And there's one way to get into it, that tent on the end, that uh, curtain on the end, and only the priests were allowed to go in there, those from the, the line of Aaron, the Levites. So they would go in there And then they would do their work out there around that altar, and then they would move occasionally into the first part of that tent. So that tent that you see, Hebrews 9 tells us it's divided up into two spaces. There's one that's 30 feet long by 15 feet wide. That's the holy place. Behind that is a square, 15 by 15 square, very small footprint. And that's where God resided. The presence of God hovered over the top of the Holy of Holies. And only God's people from the, the tribe of Levi were able to go in there. That God had said, I'm going I'm to set apart and con- consecrate a line of people that are going to be able to go in and do those works and to uh, make the altar and prepare it and slaughter the animals and do the actual sacrifices. And that was all from them. So he set this up so that he would be worshiped. So that he would gain worship. But there's still, there's something that's missing from this. Notice the altar in there. I just want to take just a moment to talk about the altar. This thing was going all the time. Continually. Uh, Leviticus 6 says, The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning. He will arrange the burnt offering on it. It shall burn on it the fat and the peace offerings Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually, and it will never go out. Can you imagine the magnitude of having animals being slaughtered all the time, continually? Always, there's this smell of burning flesh, smelling like meat, like steak, in the air surrounding this altar. But this is a nation, and their biggest line on their gross domestic product is sacrifice of animals all the time, continually to God. And that's probably as it should be for a nation that's founded to worship God and to bring glory to him. But there's something missing. The presence of God is there. Everything is set up. The rituals are there. But there's something missing. Keep thinking about that as we, as we walk through this. Uh, next slide, please. Now we're getting in even further into this tent In the veil, and this is where Hebrews 9 actually starts talking about the details of this. For a tent was prepared. That's what you're looking at. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, that's called the holy place. Then behind that, there's a second curtain called the veil in this picture, and that's called the most holy place or the holy of holies on this picture, and that had the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the covenant. It was covered on all sides with gold in which there was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So here you have, if you're with your kids and you're looking at the tabernacle, you would see that it was covered with these, these outer coverings, badger skins and goat's hair, Right? Goats were used to be sacrificed for sin. So when you looked at the tabernacle, you would see all the, the pelts and the animal skins from sin that, they had, that you and your family had committed. That was burned on the altar that was uh, sacrificed to God. But what you would see when you looked at God in the presence of God, you would see the remnants of sin, the rem- remnants of sin offering. See, the thing, one of the things that you didn't see was what's on the inside, the beauty the gold, the, the incense, the ark, all of the, the things that are in there, the lampstand and the table of showbread, you would have never seen that, never, you and your kids. But when you're looking at the presence of God, what you would have seen was the animal skins of the sins that you had committed. See, this is part of the thing, is that when you look at God under the old uh, covenant, you don't see the beauty. You just see the outside, the covering of the skins. But I really want for us to to take a look at that veil that's in there, the veil. So there's a couple of things that I want for us to understand. So there's two veils. There's the outer veil, and then there's the veil going into the Holy of Holies. There's one way to get into the Holy of Holies, right? You, You aren't going in the side. You're not going in the back. Not going in from underneath or over the top. There's one way, and that way is covered by this veil. And this veil would have been between nine and 18 inches thick. And this is lamb's wool. This thing would have been extremely heavy. Like we're talking 18 inches of, of a um, lamb's wool being pressed together. This thing could have weighed hundreds, if not a1,000 pounds of curtain that was in between the first place and the second place, the presence of God and the holy place. So as we're like, looking in this, this is not something that you can go through very easily. Matter of fact, you can't go through it. It's not like a curtain, like when you wake up in the morning and you spread the curtains and you're looking out in the backyard and stretch in and all of that. This is not what's happening. This is a veil. This is something that is, goes from floor to ceiling. There's no splits in it, The only way to get through it would have been for the high priest to prostrate himself and squeeze and crawl underneath this incredibly heavy, thick veil to get into the holy of holies. This just signifies that God is not accessible. He's not. There's no split. There's no entrance. It's to signify that God's holiness belongs in this place to be hidden, right? And the ark, which is in there, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that that was where God resided, was on the Bema seat, on the mercy seat, which was on the altar. And I remember uh, preaching about this a few weeks ago from First 1 Chronicles 13.10. They were transporting that ark. They used those sticks that you see that are kind of a part of the ark. And the ark started to tip, and this guy named Uzzah reached up with his hand to keep the ark from hitting the ground. And instead of him being applauded for his good deed, he immediately died right there beside the ark. This is to signify the holiness of God. In God's presence, it's, it's holy. There's wrath there, there is an incredible white hot purity that you and I cannot be in the presence of because we end up dying. So the high priest would have to get down on his belly, army crawl his way through to the most holy place one time a year. And as he did this, um, the priest would first, they would regularly go into the first section performing the ritual duties. But that second one, only the high priest goes and only once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself in the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy place is not yet opened. Can you imagine the fear of that high priest as he's squeezing down underneath the veil, like what if something goes wrong here, right? It's a scary, scary thing to go into the presence of God. Now, this is not biblical, but there is a tradition that comes from extra-biblical resources from uh, the nation of Israel, that the high priest would sometimes enter, and they would tie a belt or a rope around him, so that when he squeezed through there, if something went wrong, and God like smote him just because of his holiness, then they'd be able to pull this guy back out, and then find another high priest to go in and finish the thing. Like the the whole point of this is that God is so inaccessible, He is so holy, He is so other than man that. The precautions need to be taken to go into his presence. Um, There was a mini-series on Chernobyl. I don't know if you guys saw that, but um, this reactor blew up in the Ukraine, and um, they didn't believe that it blew up. They were just like, this can't happen. There's no way this thing blew up. So they had this thing happen. The alarms are going off and all of that, and they send a guy up. We just got to make sure. There's no way that this can happen. So they sent a guy up, to look, and this one poor guy goes to the edge of the roof of the adjoining building and looks down at the reactor, and it's completely wide open. His face turns red, and with hours, he's dead because he's been exposed to this power. When people came into the, the presence of God, it wasn't hours that they died. They died immediately because of his power and the holiness of his presence. But there's something missing, Right? But you're looking at this, and, and you see everything happening far off, but there's something missing. There's, these are shadows that are they're foreshadowing something. And this, there's something that's coming that's of substance. And what's missing in all of this tabernacle system? What's missing is the very presence of God within the high priest who can go into the Holy of Holies without dying. What's missing here is the gospel, What's missing is that someone who is of the same essence of the holiness that's behind the veil that can go into there for us to bring us into God's presence. What's missing is Jesus. What's missing is that someone who can go in on our behalf and not get killed but actually bring glory to God by by bringing satisfaction to his holiness. That's what's missing in the tabernacle. I don't know if you guys have watched um, the movie *Passengers* from 2016. I was watching this, and there's two main characters. One is Chris Pratt, and the other is Jennifer Lawrence. And they're both on this spaceship to go colonize another world, another planet in the world. And what they're—they're in these pods. um, They're—they're in hibernation, basically suspended animation because it takes a hundred years to go from Earth to this new land, that they're, this new world that they're going to colonize. And so they're going through, everyone's uh, in their pods, it's being flown on autopilot and artificial intelligence, but it flies through a debris field of, of asteroids, and one of them comes in and messes up the computer. And the way that it messed up the computer was it opened one pod. One pod opened early, and that was the one that Chris Pratt was in. So Here he is, he wakes up, he's like, where is everyone else? And then he realizes through a series of circumstances that he's gonna be on this ship for another 90 years by himself with no one else to help him, no one else to talk to. And he starts to lose his mind. He gets depressed, he just gives up and at one point just becomes suicidal because he's gonna die alone on this ship until he stumbles across another pod with Jennifer Lawrence in there. And he starts to look at her, and he's like, wow, I think I love her. And then he looks at all of her uh, assessment interviews and all of that from before she got on the ship and into her pod, and he starts to fall in love with her. So then what happens is there's this conundrum. It's like, I'm going to be alone, and I'm going to die here by myself, or I can try and figure out how to wake her up so then I can be with her. He's like, no, I can't do that. That's taken her life because then she'd be in the same boat as me and she would die within the 90 years as well. And she's just wrestling, wrestling, wrestling. And finally he just gives in. He opens her pod. She starts to wake up and he flees in his shame. He just runs. But then they see each other and of course they fall in love because they're the only two people and, and um, they start to get to know each other. And they, like I said, they fall in love and then she finds out what he did she finds out through a series of circumstances that he woke her up out of her hibernation and that she's going to die with him on this ship. And she's furious. Like he sinned against her. He basically killed her. So in the middle of one night, she just comes into his room and just starts raging on him. She's punching him in the face. Her wrath and her fury can't be stopped. And then she picks up a tire iron, and she's just holding it above his head. She's just going to crush him. And in that moment, he's trying to block her, and then he just stops, and he surrenders. And he looks up at her as if to say, you know what? I did. I sinned against you. Do your worst. And in that moment, she's just looking at him, and she has all the authority and all the right to crush his skull for what he did to her, And instead, she throws the tire iron away and just leaves. That is such a picture of the tabernacle system. It's such a picture of what's missing from this tabernacle. It's the same thing, that we have offended God, that we have sinned against him in his holiness. He has all the right to bring the death, the tire iron, to us. All we can do is say, Lord, have mercy on us. And in that one day a year, in that one moment, that high priest sneaks in, sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat, and then bolts out. The thing that's missing, there's not whole relationship. It's not that God is satisfied in that moment. He is like Jennifer Lawrence. He, for a moment, has mercy, but then you got to leave. And this happened year after year after year for 500 years. God's holiness has not been satisfied. There's no joy in it for him. He is simply saying, I will have mercy one more time. I'm not going to kill this people because of love for them. And, but it's not that he has like, this wholeness and this relationship that is without um, this thing, this elephant in the relationship. It's just a ceasefire every year when the high priest goes in. So, the thing that's missing from the tabernacle is that God is satisfied, that God is joyful by the sacrifice, not just tolerating the sacrifice. All of this arrangement, all of this the ark, the veil, the outer part, the um, only having a certain amount of people, a certain set of people come in it only deals with the outside, it doesn't deal with what's going on. Inside And what's going on inside of us is that we have sin, that we need someone who is holy like the person who's in the Holy of Holies to go in on our behalf. Fast forward to Jesus. John 1.14 says that Jesus came to live among us. He dwelt among us. That word dwelt means that he tabernacled among us. That Jesus came as God to live among us. And then uh, 2 Corinthians talks about how he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, that he went into the Holy of Holies on our behalf to bring glory to the Father, to bring um, satisfaction of God's wrath, of God's holiness. What joy it must have brought God to in that moment when Jesus died, to welcome him into the holy of holies. Finally, there's a high priest who is worthy to come into my presence and not just on his belly, but to walk in as of the same, uh, the same power, the same holiness as God the Father. What joy that must have brought God to have his holiness not abolished, but fulfilled, to have his holiness held up high, to have his holiness um, sought after and, and satisfied. See, Jesus didn't come to abolish God's holiness, his law. He came to fulfill it. So God was satisfied in that moment, in the holy of holies. And the Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, that veil was ripped in half. We're talking 18 inches of wool was ripped. You ever seen those guys with the phone books? This is like ripping and destroying a thousand pound garment. And God was happy to because it was his son that was coming into the Holy of Holies. It was his own presence coming into his presence. And when Jesus did that, there are implications for us. Our consciences are perfected. Uh, Hebrews 9:14 says that God sprinkles our consciousness so that they're clean, right? And the way that this happens is that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to then indwell us. Listen to these words about the third person of the Trinity who Jesus sends after he dies, comes back to life, and then is taken up to heaven. 2 Corinthians 6.16, For we are the temple of the living God. We're the tabernacle. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and I I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. The, the, the veil, the, the tabernacle, the articles inside of it, it all gets transferred. God's presence gets transferred to us, that we are the ones that are wandering around in this world, but with the presence of God inside of us. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. This is why it's hard for us to look back at the tabernacle times from from us being Christians today in 2022. We have the Holy Spirit who lives in us the moment that we come to know Jesus, so it's hard to look back and see that this thing is devoid of the Spirit of God. It's only in the Holy of Holies. It's nowhere else. And we don't see it, the the onlookers don't have him inside of them. The high priest does not have the presence of God inside of him. But now, in Jesus, we have the Spirit of God that's in us, the presence of God that is in us, that lives inside of us. So please don't underestimate the the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I've heard people say, oh, the Spirit, he's just about, like, emotionalism, or he's just about, like... um, weird stuff that I don't understand. Well, yeah, it's probably weird because a sinful being is now being indwelt by a holy God. It just doesn't make sense to us because he's so different. But the spirit being in us and on us and in Redeemer Church is the very presence of God who lives inside of us. There's another thing that's inside of the ark, inside of the holy of holies, that I think is, is very uh, prominent and very present, and I think it means a lot to us today. So just as there's this outer covering of badger skins that are um, seen here, like there's also, when the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, people only see sin. They see a body that's broken, that's dying just like everyone else's. But the thing that's inside too is in the ark there was the, um, the Ten Commandments, right? Right? And there was always within the presence of God for us, like our sin is ever before us. We're not making the Ten Commandments. We're not keeping them every day. And they were a springboard for 613 commandments that God said, In my holiness, if you want to keep these commandments, then there's 613 of them, both intentional and unintentional. This is what it's like for the Spirit to indwell in us, that Jesus, through his blood, has cleaned our consciences, has purified us, who has made us so that the Spirit of God, the very presence of God, can live inside of us. In John 14 and 16, Jesus introduces the person of the Spirit, and then we see in, in Ephesians and Thessalonians about how, what the Spirit does. So we have a a conscience that's been sprinkled clean by God through Jesus, but now we also have uh, uh, the ability to um, surrender our conscience to God. So we still have the Ten Commandments. We still aren't living perfectly, but what we can have is a clean conscience. So that our conscience has been sprinkled clean. Now we can live as if it's sprinkled clean, so take a look at your life. Is there something in which you have a not peace about, where you, where you don't have a clean conscience, a clear conscience? It's more like you, you walk around thinking, man, I've got to do this, or this isn't right, or, or there's no way that God would accept me because of my sin. You're going against what Jesus did. He satisfied God's wrath. Now I know it's hard sometimes to live within that, but yet the Bible gives all sorts of places for us to do that because what we can do is ask the Spirit, where do I need to grow? What's the thing that I need to confess? Where's the thing that is bearing down on my conscience even as of right now? We're about to take communion, and one of the things that the Apostle Paul sets forth in 1 Corinthians 11 about communion is before you take it, you need to examine yourself. Take a look at your conscience. Ask God, bring to my mind and my heart and my conscience wherever it is that you want me to grow. Right? If you don't do this, he says you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. And I don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound good. But take a moment to examine your conscience. See where you are at with God before you take communion because communion is about Jesus, and it's about his finished work for us in the cross. And lastly, before we head into communion, I want to talk about one other thing that's in the ark that I think is beautiful. And it's this staff that budded. He talked about it in Hebrews chapter 9. It's a, it's a stick with a, a bud, a flower bud on it. And you think, oh, well, that's kind of interesting and maybe a little bit boring. But when you start to look at number 17, like what is happening here? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and get from them staffs, one from each of their father's house, from all their chiefs according to their father's houses, twelve staffs. Write each man's name on his staff, and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi, for there shall be one staff for the head of each of, uh, each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose will sprout. Thus I will make... Uh, to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. So on the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and, uh, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Out of a piece of dead wood, it's, it's blossoming, it's bearing almonds. So Moses put all these out, and they were able to see from that that God chose Aaron and his staff, okay? So I work with a lot of wood out in my shop, and the last thing I would expect to go out and see from a piece of walnut is a sprout and a bud and a walnut tree growing out of this dead wood. It's just not gonna happen. It's dead wood. But why the the people of Aaron? Why Aaron? Why was his staff the one that budded? Numbers 18 says, The Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons in your father's house, you shall, hear this, bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary, and you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected to your priesthood. So this is the the priesthood. They're bearing iniquity. They're bearing sins on behalf of the people. They're going in. They're sacrificing on behalf of the people. What God is showing, it's a foreshadowing, again, to Jesus. Do you see the imagery? Do you see the power that Jesus is on the cross? It's a dead piece of wood, and Jesus is on there. He is bearing iniquity, and just like Aaron's staff, Jesus sprouts forth life. He is like a flower that's on a piece of dead wood that brings forth glory to God and salvation for mankind, It's a beautiful image for us to see Jesus in his power rising from dead wood. So please consider Jesus in this metaphor as you're taking uh, communion, as you're taking the bread and and the cup to see Jesus sprouting as a a bloom, as a flower coming out of dead wood. I'm going to ask our response teams to come on up now. And we're going to spend some time with communion. We're going to spend some time um, just taking a moment to really look at our own consciences and our own hearts and to see where God is, is bringing forth conviction. Um, I don't know exactly where and how to ask you to pray about conviction, but I think the Holy Spirit is really good about that since he lives inside of you and he, he is with you on your day-to-day. So I'm going to leave that to him but I can tell you to have a clean conscience is just so life-giving. To have prayed through the things that don't bring you peace, that you have a check in your spirit about, and to give them to God and surrender them to him is just so life-giving. It just makes your life so much better. You can sleep better. You're not thinking about how do I cover for this thing because God has already covered for it. So as you're doing that, as you're walking through that, please consider those things as you lead your family through communion. Let me pray, and then we'll get to it. Father, I thank you for Jesus, and I thank you for his work, his love, his power. I thank you, and I am so um, encouraged by the joy, Lord, Father, that you had when Jesus died and came into the Holy of Holies, into your presence as the high priest. The sin is taken care of, that uh, your holiness is satisfied, and that what happens is an implication as, a, as from the cross is that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and now we can draw near with confidence to your throne of grace because of what he has done that our consciences have been sprinkled clean. So Lord, help us with the implications. Help us to live these out. Help us to have peace. Help us to have joy. Help us to have righteousness within you, Lord Holy Spirit, as we live our days and as we move into this next time of worship right now. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.